Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. going on everybody this is wrong real the 2020 christmas special and returning for this episode we've got simon o'neill haven't done a christmas special in years because as many of you know i am the quintessential ebenezer scrooge bah humbug but we're gonna actually be celebrating an unconventional christmas movie today with john houston's final film the dead based on the classic short story from dubliners by james joyce but mr o'neill you were just on wrong reel a couple of weeks ago but you pitched this idea of doing a, a christmas special so welcome back my friend yeah thanks very much i i, I went, we've been talking for a while about doing the dead because it's a film that i absolutely love and i thought it might be interesting as a christmas special as in it's a film that i'm not sure many people have seen as in everyone's seen the african queen and the asphalt jungle maybe or treasure sarah madra but as as houston's sort of last film i'm not sure how many people have seen it maybe a lot of people have but over here in ireland it is a very well-known film and you know and in, in the film community like like is it quiet man level popularity or is it more no, uh, niche no. No, nothing is on that level. It's not. A, it's not quiet man level or <laughs> far and away. Or what are the commitments? Or the commitments or anything like that. You know, because it being a sort of a literary and a sort of slightly cerebral not, uh, uh, adaptation, 
um, of a short story by Joyce. And, you know, Joyce might scare a few people away. And, you know, it's a costume drama and all that sort of thing. But uh, I guess it's a film whose reputation keeps on growing. And I think it's a film that was well-received when it came out. It was nominated for two Oscars, didn't win any. It was nominated for Tony Houston's incredible screenplay. And it was nominated also for costume design. But it was like, oh, yeah, that's a good film. And there's some good actors in there. And I think, it, you know, a lot of films from the 80s have dated. And, and I think this is one of those films where the exact opposite has happened. It has grown. Its reputation has grown. And, and over the last couple of years, about five or ten years, so there's a, there's a cinema in Dublin called the IFI, the Irish Film Institute. It's the sort of Lincoln Centre, RT cinema, you know, where they show retrospectives and all this kind of thing. And I'm a member there. And, I, you know, I'd go and see foreign films with subtitles and all sorts of things like that, you know, and, um, but they have, but, but the, uh, story on which the, uh, dead is based on happens on January the 6th, 1904. So they have started and that's when the film occurs as well. Uh, so they have started a tradition of screening the film on January the 6th, every year just after christmas when the christmas decorations are still up and everything so you can watch the film on the day that it was you know that that the uh, the story was set and it's become this great tradition and they'll always get someone from uh, like someone from the cast to come along gotcha. to introduce it which is amazing and i've gone to see it the last uh, the last few years and about two years ago um they they had rachel dowling who plays lily the young scullery maid in it um who who helps uh, donald mccann off with his galoshes when he first arrives and all this sort of thing and she was amazing it was her first ever film role so they always have someone who who will who will talk about the film a uh, funny thing is that uh, last year i went along and uh, someone was supposed to do it some film director and he couldn't turn up and they got this this lady in to uh, to introduce her and uh, she stood up and uh, at the podium and launched into this speech about how the dead was all about toxic masculinity uh, and patriarchy. And I thought, Oh God almighty, you know, well, there's no, some there's people no... out there where no matter what they see, no matter what they read, no matter what they experience, they see it through that lens and there's just no, exactly. no help in those people. If you want to see that in every shadow, you will find it in every shadow. Yeah. I mean, you know, the spoon on this table is a reflection of toxic masculinity. If you want to. The fact that you and I are recording this podcast is an expression of our toxic masculinity. I actually thought about renaming Wrong Real at one point, Toxic Masculinity, but I thought, you know, maybe that's a needless provocation. Maybe just Wrong Real works just fine. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so I was sitting there going, oh my God, you know, does this sort of identity politics bullshit have to really infect every corner of my life? You know, I, you know, I can't even come into a darkened room without it sort of seeping in. Um, but anyway, that, and, and well, clearly say, you've not examined your toxic masculinity. How dare you? Well, well, yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm on, I'm on a journey, James, and we all are. But um, <laughs> you know, I, I I was sitting there, and, and it goes without saying that this person spoke for twice as long as any of the cast members that I've heard, or the people who are assistant directors on the film, or the people who had you know, lots of interesting anecdotes about working with John Houston uh, and all this sort of thing. But uh, anyway, that the, that's a, a by the way, that's my Grinch, Grinchiness. And, um, you know, the film was introduced, but they were shown on an old 35 millimeter print, nice. which, which was nice, you know, and crackly and everything like that. And as soon as the lights dimmed and the music came on, um, 
everything was great and wonderful again. And we were in that sort of world of 1904 Dublin that's beautifully created in this wonderful little chamber piece of a movie. Well, because you're from Ireland, and I assume everybody from Ireland knows everything about every major Irish historical figure, whether it's authors, boxers, politicians, etc., I'm just going to assume that you know this incredible breadth of knowledge about James Joyce's entire career. So for the Americans out there who maybe do not know James Joyce's role in 20th century literature, I mean, to put it in perspective, my older brother, who's a publisher here in New York with his wife, all their interns and entry-level people in their 20s, for a lot of them, James Joyce is on the level of Shakespeare. Like they, they will even say that James Joyce has eclipsed someone like Shakespeare. I might not necessarily agree, but I'm not in the world of publishing, nor am I a literary critic or anything like that. I just watch plays or read books or whatever. My knowledge of James Joyce is very slim. I got assigned a lot of James Joyce in college, skipped almost all of it. I read part of Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, and I read The Dead. I was supposed to read all of Dubliners, but I just read The Dead <laughs> because I'm a slacker. So I've read The Dead twice now, which is a marvelous short story and some of the most beautifully written passages I've ever come across. But what is your perspective on Mr. James Joyce? Well, Jane, if you skipped all the stories and only read The Dead, you're a deadbeat. That's all I can say, you know. But um, yeah, I, I, Joyce casts a long shadow in, uh, in Ireland, you know, and uh, I have... Uh, I everyone is aware of it. like as you say there are many people who would consider him the greatest novelist of the 20th century or of the modern era they would say that the modern era was 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 born when uh, Joyce um, went on this publishing journey um he uh, he is an interesting and fascinating character and 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 you know like a Picasso or someone if you ever look back at Picasso's early drawings and etchings and sketchings people are amazed oh my god they're you know this guy could really draw and it's, yeah, like, it's like something out of the renaissance yeah ex exactly he's he's, he's drawing you know dancers and people uh, with char charcoal and a pencil and it's incredibly um photorealistic um and the dimensions and how he captures the human form is wonderful and it's like he had to understand the rules of um, his art before he could smash them into little pieces and make people whose heads look like TV screens or something like that. You know, and it, it, I think it's the same with Joyce that I think in our postmodern age, in architecture and art and lit literature, a lot of people skip to that second stage without mastering the first stage. Yeah, it's like you, know, you start they, improvising they, in jazz before you actually learn like the melody that you're improvising off of. It's like, oh, well, you're, now you're just like playing tennis with a net. Like you got to learn the form and then you can explore. Exactly. And, they, and the same in architecture and the same in, uh, in music and the same in art. A lot of people kind of go straight for the jugular with, the, with, with their modern abstract expressionism without the crap, you know, without honing that craft and then smashing it into a thousand pieces, um, which is a long-winded sort of way of saying that, like, Joyce's early, certainly his first collection of stories, uh, Joyce, born in February 1882 into a family of 10 and uh, born into comfortable middle-class existence uh, in Ranelagh uh, with a father who was a bit of a bon viveur and sort of someone he looked, you know, he had a he had a questionable relationship with Ireland and with the church and with everything, but, you know, he learned how to love singing and the high life and everything from his, from his father. 
uh, I was watching this little really cheapo documentary recently that so, someone had put together on Joyce, and it was a really great little introduction to an, an addition to what I kind of knew already. Um, and he 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 wor- went to study in UCC, and he excelled, and he was great. I went to Clongo's College, which was run by the Jesuits, and the, and. And the Jesuits were, you know, when people talk about uh, an argument being very Jesuitical, they mean that it's, you know, very intellectual and very circular and that they're you know, the Jesuits more than any other order here in Ireland are sort of very cerebral, intellectual bunch. And he sort of enjoyed, I think, jousting off them. Like a lot of people became very sort of devout in his early stages and then, you know, hit sort of puberty and started drinking you know, and that all went out the window and then became very anti-religion and censorship and all that sort of thing. And he moved to um, he moved to London for a while and came back. He was sort of flitting forward and back and he was writing. He found it very, very hard to get anything published. I mean, even Dubliners. But uh, yeah, what I was saying earlier was just that Dubliners shouldn't terrify anyone, even if, if they've never read Joyce. Just if Dubliners it's early in his it, career, it's a little bit more exactly. accessible yeah, than it's very Ulysses. Accessible. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like his early funny stuff. It's like the early Woody Allen stuff. Yeah. It's it's very accessible. It's a wonderful collection of short stories that he was published in 1914. I mean, it took him a good few years to get it published. And it's all uh, centered around sort of lower, upper middle class Dublin, you know, clerks and people like that. And, you know, various people that like all writers, he was a sponge and he would walk around this sort of crumbling, decaying Georgian Dublin at the start of the century, which was a incredibly exciting place in terms of like art and literature and there was a celtic revival going on where which which is referenced in the movie where people were going back to the old celtic songs and stories and republishing them and then translating them from the gaelic into into english and um you know he was soaking up all that malay of stuff and and his first collection came out in 1914 or so, around then. I mean, it's set in 1904. Um, but by that stage, I think he was on the continent. He went to Trieste to to uh, teach English, and he was he was he was his father. Like the family had sort of you know he had that kind of like um, Bud Schulberg thing where his dad was reasonably well off, but just kept losing money and then becoming they kept moving to sort of smaller and smaller houses as he was younger he turned and then a he large fortune into a small one that's a, a tried and true path a lot of people have taken <laughs> exactly and, and and he kind of picked up that way of like whatever money he had he spent he was kind of a spendthrift and he, he never had tuppence to rub together um he published dubliners and which was very well received i mean it's never been out of print hundred and whatever years later, you know, it's a magnificent book. I'd advise anyone to read it. It's short stories. Some of this page, some of the stories are only like four or five pages long. Um, and the longest story is the last story, which is called the dead, which is the novella that this movie we're going to talk about is based on. And it is, um, considered by many people to be the greatest short story in the English language. You know, there, there, there are a couple of short stories, um, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. I don't know if you ever read that. I have one. read that. I've read it yeah. and I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was on my. It was on my. It was on our English curriculum when I was in school. Uh, another one would be the lottery, 
by Shirley Jackson, which, which I've I, read. I it's extraordinary. It's fucking it's terrifying. Amazing. I mean, if this terrifying. The, yeah, yeah. who wrote uh, Haunting of Hill House? But the lottery, if you want to read just a good down and dirty little horror story, ooh, it, it, it'll, it'll punch you right in the guts. I, I, I'd argue, just for pure shock value, the story Guts by, um, oh, who's the guy who wrote uh, Fight Chuck, Club? Chuck, Chuck Palahniuk. Yeah, Chuck, Chuck Palahniuk's story yeah. Guts. Throw that one in there if you just want to watch people cry for reading it out loud to, to an audience. Because Guts had me walking around my apartment, like hyperventilating, putting the book down, feeling queasy. I mean, it's, it's, it's a rough story to get through, but you will laugh your ass off as well along the way. Okay, well, it sounds like what's it, Boogie McBooger Balls or whatever the one is in South Park when they write this uh, story. They write the most disgusting novel ever written and I everyone vomits. Guts succeeds. Guts is, um, okay. yeah, gut, teachers have been fired for even assigning it to their students. So, which, oh which of course, immediately is like, well, then I've got to read that. That sounds, fa- that sounds fantastic. Well, you know, we're, we're, we're fast approaching the era when they'll be fired for assigning Dubliners to people or the dead anyway. So. They'll be uh, fired for assigning anything other than like, yeah. you know, comrade approved art. Yeah. So enjoy it while you can. But um, I think the dead is in that sort of school as in it's a it's a short story. Maybe not as well known as those, but like people who like this sort of literary stuff think it's pretty damn good. And uh, it was a film that Houston himself always wanted to make. But uh after that, Joyce published um, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, which is a, which was a book he had started a few years earlier. Basically, Joyce left Ireland and he went back once or twice. But once he left for Paris, he never went back again. And he lived as an exile and he lived in Trieste and he lived in Paris and he lived in Zurich. And I think he died in Zurich. Uh, like there's a statue of him in Trieste on bridge. But he never stopped writing about Dublin. I can't remember what quote I read, but somewhere he said through Dublin, it's almost like you can experience all of human life or human existence. And so he just kept coming back to that topic, irrespective of uh, where he might be living. Yeah. Dublin was in his bones, you know, and he, he would, he would, he would, yeah, he, he left it, but it mentally he never left it. It was somewhere that he, he needed the distance of the exile to be able to examine it properly. He didn't write about Trieste. He didn't write about Paris. He didn't write about Zurich. He, he, he wrote of the Dublin that he knew, but in incredible forensic detail. The quote I always remember from Ulysses is uh, the sea, the snot green sea, the scrotum tightening sea. And anyone who's jumped into the the sea in Ireland, a friend of mine is doing it every day at the moment. They've been doing it for two people I know have been doing it every day since lockdown and, you know, jumping into the sea in December. That is the perfect description of it. He had these incredibly, uh, obviously, uh, florid and lyrical uh, descriptions of old Dublin town. And he was writing this book, Stephen Hero, which is about a young undergraduate, essentially him in UCD, University College Dublin. Um, and sort of flashbacks to his upbringing in Clongo's Wood College, quite an exclusive college uh, here, where, the, as I said, the, the, the Jesuits taught him. And um, there's, I read that book, and it's absolutely amazing. There's, there's quite a good uh, film or TV adaption uh, starring this guy, Bosco Hogan. And in, in, in Portrait of the Artist of a Young Man, there's this famous passage where just at the moment when the sort of boys in the college are starting to think about sinful things you know, is, is the point where the Jesuits get in to tell you, look, you know, you, you shouldn't do sinful things because you'll go to hell. 
and let me describe what hell is like. And he describes it for page after page. He describes the flesh searing intensity of hell to all these impressionable young kids. Um, and then and then he goes on. Having done that, he goes on to describe eternity. And uh, he describes eternity in terms of like, look at a beach. If you can imagine a beach and imagine that like a sparrow or some bird flies to, onto the beach and picks up a grain of sand in its beak and flies away. And then it comes back and every hundred years it picks up a grain of sand. Imagine how long it would take for the, for the, the bird to clear the beach. Well, then multiply that by a hundred thousand and you have a you know, mind boggling uh, descriptions of eternity and hell and damnation, which terrify the young Stephen Hero slash Joyce or Stephen Daedalus, he's called in the book. Um, and then, of course, he meets prostitutes and starts having sex with them and sort of turns his back on religion and all this sort of stuff. And that's another fantastic book. Um, and that also was very well received. And then there was a big break when he uh, went away and arrived with this book called Ulysses, which was to change how the novel was written and to yeah, it's reconstruct like T.S. Eliot that. and like The Wasteland and like any other like major literary work you can think of that completely reinvents the language by which people actually communicate their ideas with the, the written word. Yeah. And there are lots of people who think Ulysses is the greatest language, the greatest book in the English language. Um, I probably can't tell you because I, I haven't read it. I've dipped into it and I've, I've, I've read the first two easy ones. All right. So why does it have the reputation that it has? Like, what is what is the challenge? Because I know he's all about the stream of consciousness. And there are all those great scenes in uh, Third Man when uh, Holly is get, making a speech. And everybody keeps asking him all these questions about James Joyce. Like, in which category do you place James Joyce? Do you believe in the stream of consciousness? Blah, blah. I mean, it, it completely upset the, the literary world. Why does Ulysses have this reputation of just like breaking the backs of people who try to read it? Um, God, you'd have to ask someone who'd read the book, but I do, but I do, but I do know, well, I know it's, inti it's intimidating because of its style of language. I think like Ulysses is like a war and peace, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a novel that its reputation precedes it. It's like, it's like seen as the Everest of reading and people are terrified of it before they even open a page. And I think like, like people. infinite jest. A lot of people like will say like, "Oh yeah, David Foster Wallace. He's a marvelous writer." But none of them have actually read like the book that he's most famous for because it's so notoriously difficult <laughs> to fight your way through it. I read like a quarter of Infinite Jest, and I was like, "Yeah, it's difficult to get through it." And I set it aside and I never picked it up back up back up again. Yeah, Ulysses. It's on my to do list. It's it's on the shelf in my bathroom. You know, blinking at me, winking at me when I pop in there. And uh, God, I'll have to pick it up after this. And um, it's uh, it's the story of one day. I think it's July the 16th, which has since become Bloomsday. And it's the story of one man crossing Dublin, Leopold Bloom. Uh, and it's all the weird and wonderful characters that he meets. And it's a stream of consciousness novel about his thoughts and his popping in and out of various pubs. And films are always stealing that style. Like Richard Linklater loves that style of movies like Slacker mm. or Waking Life and things like that, where you have just like one character bumping into another and then like the central character will change and so on and so forth. But a lot of filmmakers have been inspired by that approach to storytelling. It sounds, in theory, delightful, but I guess uh, I'll have to put my money where my mouth is at some point and drink some Irish whiskey and take a crack at it. Yeah, and then... Following on from that, he published Finnegan's Wake, which is seen as completely impenetrable by some people. You know, it's seen as 
you know, there's very little punctuation in it, and there are sentences that go on for paragraphs. And and I haven't read Finnegan's Wake. I don't even own a copy, so uh, I will have to give that a bash. Has anybody ever tried a movie of Finnegan's Wake? Um, no, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, there's there's another writer who is a contemporary of Joyce's called Flan O'Brien. I'm not sure if you've heard of him, and he had. He's sort of like a, he writes in a Joycean style and he too wrote some, they're very, very revered here in Ireland. At Swim Two Birds was his first book, which was a huge success. And people compared him to Joyce and uh, they were contemporaries. And then he wrote a book called Third Policeman, which was um, rejected by his publishers. And he told various people that he'd lost it, that he left it on the book, uh, on the bus that he lost the manuscript and it was never actually published during his lifetime. It was only published posthumously and is another really celebrated novel of his that it's very Joycean in its conceits, but is full of surrealism and bizarre characters uh, and very Irish. Um, But his novels are often seen as being unfilmable and they they talk a lot. There was talk recently of Brendan Gleeson doing a film of The Third Policeman, uh, and there's been talk of it, Swim Two Birds. I think some guy made a movie in the 70s of it, which I haven't seen. But Finnegan's Wake is one of those um, novels that is kind of looked on as unfilmable. But then again, a lot of people thought The Dead was unfilmable. A lot of people have this thing because internal monologue happens so much how do you convey that when when we talked about raymond chandler just want to name check him here uh there was the problem of how do people get this hard-boiled internal monologue dialogue yeah, so they would do voiceover two different forms of media and mm. for me i tend tend to but not always agree with this idea that trashy fiction makes better movies than great literary fiction because when you've got trashy fiction more often than not it's plot driven and movies mm. love a good plot. You just put it in pictorial form, act it, act it well, put some great music in there, and you're off to the races. But great literary fiction usually has almost no plot. It, like you can have an entire short story or novel, somebody just sitting in a window just thinking about stuff, and it's all about the voice of the author. You're basically in the hands of the author, and the mm. more style and the more distinctive voice they have, the more it can kind of carry you away. I mean, the end of the dead, in terms of plot, Nothing really happens. He just kind of looks out the window at the snow. But in terms mm. of style and voice, it's awe-inspiring. And like you can feel your soul soaring, and it's, it's, mm. it's totally exquisite. So how do you, in a pictorial medium, capture the voice of the author? And that's always the, the great riddle. But of all the filmmakers who've ever lived, John Huston's one of the best ever at adapting both trashy fiction as well as highbrow literary fiction. And he played around with both on many occasions because he's one of those guys that could fucking crush a giant book in an afternoon and could write pretty goddamn well in his own right started out as a writer in the 30s so i think he while he's known as this great adventurer filmmaker shooting elephants and that sort of thing he was also a a a man of letters and i think that's one of the reasons why he and his daughter and his son made such a good team in adapting the short story yeah he was he was the perfect i mean i I think it had been a long-held ambition of his to make this movie and the challenge of it being unfilmable and you can't make it. And he would have thought he was very literate. And he. I think at the end of his life, he thought of himself as a writer more than anything else. Like that's what he liked to do. Um, he wrote his autobiography um, and he, he was very invested in literary fiction and he was also um 
obsessed a little bit uh, or, you know, ver very interested in Ireland. Well, he lived in Ireland. And, yeah. uh, he visited in the 50s, fell in love with it, and by the 60s was an Irish citizen, uh, an Irish citizen. Yeah. Yeah, he was an Irish citizen and, and he had a great, uh, he had this idea that he was going to revive the Irish film industry and get people to tell their stories there. And he made he made a couple of films there. He made this film, I've never seen it, called The Macintosh Man, starring Paul Newman. I've seen running it. Running around. If you want to watch yeah. a Paul Newman film where he works with John Huston, watch the Judge Roy Bean. Macintosh Man is fine, but Judge Roy mm. Bean is dramatically superior. Yeah, so I've heard. And uh, he made a couple of films that had some scenes here, but, but he came over, he made... Um, a lot of money, I think, on the Moulin Rouge movie, the Toulouse-Lautrec one, or whatever film that he was doing in the in the early fifties, and he had sort of, I think, I read that he got disillusioned with Hollywood after that film, uh, the Red Badge of Courage. There's a yeah. there's a book, big big passion by, project for him. I've seen yeah. Red Badge of Courage. It's good, but I, I get why it did not succeed the way something like Maltese Falcon or Treasure of the Shield. I mean, he's one of those guys who would flip flop back and forth between hits and flops and great movies and crap movies. And also, he loved to gamble and loved to waste money. And he's one of those guys, I think, no matter how much money he made, he always spent slightly more. <laughs> and so mm. he was kind of a, a reckless, uh, risk-seeking type of personality, but it, which perfectly suited him in Ireland, where he became, uh, apparent, according to Wikipedia, master of foxhounds of the County Galway Hunt. He loved riding, loved hunting, and... He was just a fucking wild man. I mean, he'd go off and shoot movies, and he'd come home with like gorillas, and like his wife would just be like, "All right, I guess we now have like gorillas and apes living in our home and things like that." I mean, it's just he was completely insane, but I, I adore the man. Yeah, he wanted he wanted to buy uh, somewhere. There's a great book about that uh, Red Badge of Courage by Lillian Ross called Picture. Uh, anyone wants to read it? She she was embedded with the film uh, company for the entire process of the. Uh, of the shooting of the Red Badge of Courage, um, which is really interesting. But yeah, after that, he sort of moved away. And he, but he wanted to buy somewhere. Um, he visited Ireland, fell in love with it. But he wanted to buy somewhere where he could exactly put all this stuff. He had paintings and he had art and he had sculptures. And, you know, the storage was starting to get a little bit bursting at the seams. And I was, so I was looking at the, at the place he put. Uh, today I found a picture of it. He bought this place called, uh, what was it called? Uh, uh, St. Clarence a three-story, 17-room house that was in need of repair, kind of falling apart a little bit. Uh, and it's in Galway. It's in East Galway. It's a 110-acre estate, and he would ride horses around there, kind of saw himself as, you know, the the to the manor born in his jodhpurs and exactly fox hunting and shooting and fishing and all that sort of thing. And Angelica Houston and Tony Houston were brought up there. They were brought up in the west of Ireland and... That has obviously a real resonance for Angelica Houston and for Tony Houston when they, I mean, they, this is a family affair, this film, when they came to do it together and they were obviously hugely invested in Ireland. It was there for about 10, 15 years, as you say, became, became a, an Irish citizen. And then um, when his fourth marriage broke up, he moved to London and the kids came to London with him and the place was sold on. But yeah, he was there for a good 15, 20 years. And he, he, I think he felt very much of his soul, a part of Ireland, you know, spoke to him, the literary tradition and everything like that. So in his later sort of literary career period, when he was doing things like Wisebud, which is, again, Flannery O'Connor really adaptation. Really fucking good, like that, and like Amazing. Under the Volcano. And like, Amazing. he's one of the few directors who 
in the 70s, in spite of the fact that he kind of came of age during the golden age, had this career resurgence. I can't think of a single director who was making movies in the, or at least he was writing in the 30s, directing in the 40s, but I can't think of any director from that period who adapted as successfully to the 70s as John Huston. I mean, just in the 70s, you've got Fat City, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, uh, The Man Who Would Be King, Wise Blood. I mean, th that's an incredible run. And this is, and it, and it continues. I mean, the 80s, you got friggin' uh, Victory Under under the Volcano, Preetzee's Honor and the Dead. I mean, I, I leave Annie yeah. out because my mother made me take my entire group of friends to see it. I can't remember what movie it was, but I invited everybody over for my birthday, and I promised we were going to see something really cool. And at the last minute, my mother's like, oh, well, we're not going to go see that. We're going to go see Annie instead. And my friends gave me these withering glances. I'll never forget this, us all in a row, just bitter and hating this movie, and my mother just being delighted. So I've, I've had a massive bone to pick with Annie ever since I was six years old. <laughs> well, it's a hard-knot life. It's a hard-knot life, hard life. So, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I mean, I, I had actually forgotten. I hate Annie almost Annie. as much as I hate Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I well, I well, I'd forgotten that he uh, even directed that, but I think we can uh, give him a pass. He possibly directed it so he could get the cast together to do. Oh, it's a monster hit! Yeah, I think he this did. passion project. Yeah, um, which which was interesting. That the the one of the obviously first you have a problem with how do you approach the script as we were mentioned. How do you approach this beautiful internal monologue? And how do you portray it on screen? Uh, uh, another issue that uh, had kind of came up because uh, this guy recently, um, I think last year, uh, Joyce's grandson, Stephen Joyce, died. And, and if you wanted to make a Joyce movie or a Joyce uh, documentary or you show a clip of Joyce, Joyce estate, yeah. you had to get permission from the Joyce estate and who were notoriously like he would. There was a guy, uh, David Blake Knox, who uh, he was writing about it in the Irish papers and he said he wanted to use uh, a few clips for a documentary he was making. And the guy said, a million pounds sterling straight away. The exorbitant fees. And the Joyce um, catalogue has, or maybe not the catalogue, but I think a few of the novels have now come into public domain because they were 100 years old. I'm not exactly sure about the dates, but I know that I read something about that. But back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, this was stuff was completely locked down and you couldn't use it without the... Uh, so, and it, the son lived uh, on a fashionable French island called Ile de Ré, sorry, the, 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 the grandson. And I've been to Ile de Ré. I cycled there when I was in La Rochelle. It's this lo lovely little island off La Rochelle. And I went there and I had uh, a lovely dinner and a glass of white wine and just imagined what it would be like to live here with all the sort of rich celebrities. But he lived there and he um, oversaw that... Uh, canon of work with a vice-like grip but then again someone like John Huston if he had the reputation and the money that he'd coined from making Annie he could obviously pry open the permission to uh, to make the dead in 1987. Yeah and also just has the track record of showing that he actually knows how to handle something slightly more highbrow, whether you're talking about like Night of the Iguana or whatever mm -hmm. the case might be, I or see. even with, uh, I mean, obviously Rudyard Kipling is quite different from James Joyce, but the fact that he did take a Rudyard Kipling novella of The Man Who Would Be King and turned it into one of the coolest movies of the 1970s. So he obviously, he knew how, he knew how to make a short story. He also understood sometimes it's better to take a short story and flesh it out than it is to take a big ass novel and cut away because you start cutting away, you kind of, cut away whatever might have made it good in the first place but with the dead they were in a position where there's just not that much material there it's only like 40 or 50 pages 
they actually mm. do have to add a few lines and uh i guess what we can get into that with the uh, the movie but obviously there's like a poem that gets read and things like that there's some things that they add that i imagine that for some james joyce purists were a uh, focus of potential controversy <laughs> thank you kate thank you ladies and gentlemen i had intended doing a comic recitation for you this evening but I came across something recently that I would very much like to pass on to you. It is called Broken Vows. It is late last night the dog was speaking of you. The snipe was speaking of you in her deep marsh. It is you are the lonely bird throughout the woods and that you may be without a mate until you find me. You promised me, and you said a lie to me, that you would be before me where the sheep are flocked. I gave a whistle and three hundred cries to you, and I found nothing there but a bleating lamb. You promised me a thing that has hard got you. A ship of gold under a silver mast. Twelve towns and a market in all of them. And a fine white court by the side of the sea. You promised me a thing that is not possible. That you would give me gloves of the skin of a fish. That you would give me shoes of the skin of a bird. And a suit of the dearest silk in Ireland. My mother told me not to be talking with you. Today or tomorrow or on Sunday. It was a bad time she took for telling me that was shutting the door after the house was robbed. You have taken the east from me. You have taken the west from me. You have taken what is before me and what is behind me. You have taken the moon you have taken the sun from me. And my fear is great. You have taken God from me. Yeah, I guess so. There's, there's purists in, uh, in, every, in every line, especially when you have a literary icon like this. I mean, as far as I know, the, the, the film is pretty well received. Like when, when they show it here, it's, it's shown with a lot of respect. And as I say, its reputation has definitely grown and grown over the years. I actually I looked up the um, program for the IFA. I don't think they're showing it this year. So I wrote them an email asking them. And they never replied. But anyway, um, so I don't know if it's on the program for this year with COVID and everything like that. Obviously, I was watching it last year um, and I went and I sat down and um, it was uh, a wonderfully moving experience, as it always is, to see it with an audience. But in terms of what you're saying, the additions to the script, I think, are 
absolutely brilliant. And I think Tony Houston's screenplay, I don't think he wrote another one after this. Yeah, it's funny how incredible. He, yeah, he worked. Tony, I mean, John Houston had a lot of kids, and most of them ended up working in the movie business. Obviously, Danny Houston's been doing just fine as of late. Angelica Houston, great reputation in her own right. But Tony Houston had been working off and on on John Houston movies since 1963. The list mm, of Adrian mm. Messenger. He was an actor, and then mm. he started working as a uh, as a writer throughout the uh, the late 60s and then 70s. And for whatever reason, yeah, The Dead is his last screenplay. I don't know. I don't know why that is. Yeah, I'm not sure myself. Um, maybe concentrating on acting or other things, but it's a brilliant screenplay. I think perfect. Front, as you say, they they couldn't just shoot what is in there. He 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 takes certain parts of it that are written descriptively, as in such and such was telling a story about the old horse, and then he takes it and man, and then turns that into dialogue. So. He's not inventing a lot. He's actually taking things when when Joyce will describe a conversation, he'll rewrite it as dialogue as close as possible. Um, and as, fa as faithful as it is to the novel, the one big addition is the character of Mr. Grace, who is, as you say, the guy who reads the poem. And that is, again, a fantastic artistic choice because it's just a brilliant poem. And it really starts to set the tone of the sort of second act of the film. It's the eighth century Irish poem. Is it how do you pronounce it? Donal Og or Young Donald? Donal Og. Donal Og, yeah. Gotcha. Young Young Donald. And what's interesting about that is so there was um at the time there was a whole Celtic revival going on, as I said, of people rediscovering their language and this the whole politics of that is played out in in, in the various conversations in the dead. And, yeah, whether or uh, not you're a West Briton or not. Yeah, well, that's that's interesting. As uh, so, last week West Brit was trending in Ireland on Twitter. Just and that as basically I was means someone who stuff. looks to England for cues to follow in terms of like culture, politics, business, etc. Explain this whole idea of uh, of West Britain because it's a big insult that gets or it gets playfully thrown at Gabrielle uh, a few times throughout the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it does in the book, and in, and in, and in, and again, Tony Huxley brilliantly expands that uh, character uh, um, of Molly Ivers, who's also uh, brilliantly played uh, in the movie by Maria McDermott Rowe. But that that is fleshed out, and 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 her republicanism is fleshed out. But she calls uh, Gabriel a West a West Briton, is how she says it. It's kind of uh, it's been shortened to West Brit now, but uh, she she annoys him. In fact, quite a lot of people annoy him when he gets in because he's kind of a bit flustered because he's got to do this speech. So then, you know, people are slagging him and he's a bit testy and a bit narky. And she calls him West Britain. And as she describes it, uh, she says a West Britain is someone who uh, who, who who looks to uh, who looks to England rather than ourselves alone. And again, that was a, a brilliant choice by. Tony Houston, who obviously really understood the politics of um, of Ireland, so Sinn Féin, who are the, the Republican Party here in Ireland, and don't get into politics too much, but Sinn Féin translated into English means ourselves alone. That's how some people translate it, you know. So and and, and Molly Ivers is off to a Republican rally, which would have been a Sinn Féin rally in Liberty Hall, where Republicans were talking. And this was, of course, before. 1916 revolution in 1904 
So at this time, was all of Ireland, the entire island, was considered part of Great Britain? Well, it wasn't considered. It was, you know. Okay, it's gotcha. Like, it's like, it's not, considered by the yeah. English. Uh, it's as like, to... well, well, you know, not my president. It's like, I'm sorry, he is, you know. So, yeah, Ireland was English. Gotcha. Its complete administration was run. So she's going off to a Republican uh, meeting. That means these are people who are pro-Irish independence. Yeah. So in the late 19th century, you had this, the revival of this thing called the Land League, led by Michael Davitt who were, uh, there's a great Stuart Granger film about about it called Captain Boycott. I don't know if you've seen that film, but Captain Boycott was this landlord who was terribly mean to his, you know, rack renting by putting up his rent by extraordinary amounts when he wanted people off the land and just essentially um, an arsehole to his peasant Irish tenant farmers. And uh, Stuart Granger is plays an Irish character in it and he goes to some rally um, to hear David or someone from the Land League because he wants to go along and because he, he wants to smash this guy up, Captain Boycott, smash his face in, burn his house down. And uh, the guy from the Land League says, no, no, we've got this wide up. What we should what we should do is we should shun him. We should ignore him. Nobody speak to him in the street. Nobody talk to him. Nobody sell anything. And they come up with the idea of boycotting. That's where boycotting comes from, from Captain Boycott, who was this landlord in the 19th century. So there was all these agitation going on in sort of more in rural Ireland uh, amongst the landed gentry and the te- and the peasants. And then and then there was a, a re- there was a Gaelic revival where all this literature was being revived. And as we see in the film translated into English to bring it into a broader audience, there was Yeats, uh, Lady Gregory, as he describes, who who was a patron of Yeats. And Yeats is writing poems like um, September 1913, which are all about. That was just before this Dubliners was published in 1914. And there's a line in the um, September 1913, and it says, you know, uh, that that people that people were going mad for republicanism, and if something like this happened now, you'd say some woman's yellow hair has maddened every mother's son. That like there was a sort of mania of revolution, a hint of revolution in the air, and that people were um, stirring themselves by looking back to because there've been many failed Irish revolutions leading up to you know 1798 and, and I mean and, for and, centuries. I mean going back to like. Cromwell, like in the 1600s, sure. and so on and so forth. So yeah, I mean, we're I worry we're getting maybe perhaps derailed with like centuries of English oppression of Ireland. But you mentioned Yeats, who I used to jokingly refer to as Yeats back in college. But I did want to just give a shout out to the Second Coming, which I think is one of the greatest poems uh, ever ever written. But uh, yes, I've got little teeny tiny little samples of knowledge from my uh, English literature classes back in college. But sadly, I was such a burnout stoner movie freak i skipped almost all my assignments but second coming by yates was definitely one of the ones that i remember very vividly well uh what need you being come to sense yet fumble in the greasy till and add the half pence to the pence and prayer to shivering prayer for the uh, romantic ireland's dead and gone oh for they were born to pray and save but but little time had they to pray for whom the hangman's rope was spun, but let them be their dead and gone. They're with O'Leary in the grave. That's September 1913. That was beaten into me in school by the priests. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, L- literally or figuratively? Probably literally rather than figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these, these were yeah. There was a bit of roughhousing going on, but um, but Yates again, massive figure at the time. 
and there was all this excitement around uh, again. Yeah, I don't want to get too into it. I'm not that knowledgeable about, it, but like you know, in the Abbey Theatre when they showed the play, the um, Playboy of the Western World, which kind of shows the uh, peasantry of Ireland in a sort of negative uh, way, not being honourable. There was riots on the stage and people were kind of tearing up their programmes and throwing them and Yates strolled out onto stage and shouted out at the audience, you have disgraced yourselves again to the audience. And, you know, this was the incredibly exciting atmosphere of art that was being created at the time, you know, when, when, when Joyce was writing all these novels. But the West Britain is someone exactly who looks to Britain, to the UK for salvation rather than to his own country. Now, 116 years later, last uh, week, there was a guy called Paddy Cosgrave and he organizes the Web Summit every year. And they used to have the Web Summit in Dublin until they moved it to Portugal, I think, because he said the internet was too bad or, you know, he he wasn't happy with how it was going and, and he wanted it to be more international. And uh, it's been very successful. The Web Summit has become this huge coming together of people who do web and internet stuff. Um, but he wrote this uh, tweet about a politician called Neil Redmond, who is a Fine Gael politician from the governing party, very middle of the road, very vanilla, very bland. And uh, he said he is not a, not only did he call him a, West, a classic West Brit, he called him a castle Catholic, which is, you know, I mean, it's kind of an Uncle Tom kind of thing to say, you know, it's like to be a castle Catholic is to be Catholic, as in to be, you know, Irish and Catholic and national, but to be in the castle, as in to be living with the oppressors in the mansion house, in the big house on the hill kind of thing. Um, and there was an argument and West Brit was trending. It was kind of funny because I was just watching The Dead and thinking, oh, my God, the next day West Brit is trending, like as in, is it an insult? And I work, so, you know, uh, uh, one of the, uh, I work with this newspaper group and one of the papers they published, one of the journalists has written this thing saying, you know, West Brit is, it's racist and it's, you know, it's a terrible insult. I was called it purely because I went to a Protestant school, uh, you know, and I'm I'm as Irish as everyone else. So it's kind of questioning your Irishness and saying you're not really Irish enough um, and, 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 and saying, of course, by extension, I am more Irish than you. And uh, when when I when I was in school, because when I was a kid, I grew up uh, for a couple of years in in England, and when I came back to Ireland to school, I I had quite an English accent. Oh shit! So, yeah, so I mean, I wasn't called a West Brit; I was just called a fucking Brit, full stop. Like, well, it'd be no like West. if you grew up in the South and well, then you go up to boarding school in New England and you come back with like a, a like a, a Yankee accent. Yeah, people in the South are going to give you shit. Like, I mean, what separates the North and the South culturally is much less than it once when it once did, but. Yeah, if you're from a particular region, if you're like if you're from Texas, and then you go off to school in Connecticut and you come back and start saying things like "you guys" instead of "y'all," then yeah, people are gonna are gonna get get in your face. Absolutely, it's the exact same thing. And uh, but what was funny about uh, the thing last week was was your man Neil Redman is uh, again. I don't want to get into politics. I want this is a beautiful work of art. But at the moment, there's this big saga going on about Brexit here in Ireland, and everyone's shitting their pants about it and everything. And you know, it's like England's leaving the EU. Big fucking deal. But you know, it's a big news event here. And but Neil Redmond would be one of the people who is a, a federalist, an EU loyalist, who basically exists to insult the English about their delusions of grandeur and their and their harking back to lost empire and you know the things that he thinks are fueling brexit so i mean from what i can see the guy is 
anglophobic. You know, he hates England as far as I can see. I don't know. I just thought to single him out as being a West Briton is seemed to me a little bit bizarre. Whereas there are there are other sort of a bit more snooty characters in Irish public life that you might pick out as a West Brit. Anyway, it was just it's interesting that 116 years later, it's still it's relevant. Been, yeah, it's been slung around on Twitter as an insult to people as it was back in the dead. And uh, Gabriel is being seen as a West Briton because he writes for the Daily Express. And the Daily Express is a very Tory, conservative, right-wing paper. Again, so all these notes are perfectly relevant, as relevant today, even looking on Twitter, as they were when when he was uh, writing the book. That's where the whole West Britain thing comes in. And that's where the whole Republican thing is comes in uh, that Maria McDermott Rowe is going to Liberty Hall to Republican meeting. So there's this air of ferment and there's this air of things are about to change, which they do about 10 years later when you have the 1916 rising and then the war of independence. So it's a, it's an interesting time to be writing about. Absolutely. Well, let's start diving into the adaptation itself. Uh, for people out there who've neither read nor seen the dead, it's basically just this very nice Christmas party that is hosted by these three kindly old ladies, and it's a, a kind of a, a big event every year. People come in black tie, and there's, you know, not when I say ballroom dancing, it makes it sound like there's some grand like ballroom. It's a you know relatively modest room, but there is there is dancing and that sort of thing. It seems like the roster of invites might alter slightly on any given year, but a lot of these people are old friends or old family members, and they have their party, they have their dinner. And then at the end, Gabriel and his wife, they go home and she has this story she tells about a boy that she was in love with or who was in love with her uh, when she was a, a young girl. There's not a whole lot in terms of like plot and structure to break apart, but it's all about these these moments, these beats, these like these like incredible character beats that a lot of these characters like Freddie enjoy, which I think makes the movie incredibly relatable because everybody's been to a party where there's someone like Freddie who drinks way too goddamn much and he's just a mess and you're kind of wondering like how many awkward pauses are going to be after he makes some pronouncement or like the uh, the classic belligerent drunk played by Dan O'Hurley who's just scowling and grumbling the entire time and eventually just passes right out. And so I feel like there's a lot of universality to the story that's easy to relate to. But this was your idea and your pitch. So what is it about the dead just as a movie, as a story that really screams out at you? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a film I've seen several times now. But I think uh, exactly as you describe it, not a lot happens. And it's quite a, it's a chamber piece. And it's ticking along and you're introduced to these characters because the three aunts are having this party and they're worried because Gabriel hasn't turned up and Freddie Mullins hasn't turned up and people turn up and then they eat, they drink and there's wine and they're singing and all that sort of thing. And it's just ticking along nicely. Um, to me, it's a kind of film that creeps up on you. It's one of those films that it just seems to be going along. Eh, you know, yeah, I'll go along with this. Uh, the dialogue is kind of funny and it, the, you're introduced to new characters, so you're never bored, but it just slowly kind of wraps its fingers around your throat, really. And then um, it could, it, it's its like you say, it, it's almost like a chamber piece. Like it could be... Like it's almost like it's missing like a murder mystery or something like that, and it could have turned into like Gosford Park or something like that. A hundred percent. I was just thinking that the other day. I was thinking that, you know, if, if, if like... if 
you know, during the dinner, like one of the characters could just keel over and like face first into their soup with a knife in his back. And then we've got like, oh, it's Colonel Mustard in the pantry, you know, with the with the candelabra. Um, it could go that way, but it doesn't. It uh, it's it's a very, very small movie that's about huge universal themes. It's about life. It's about death. It's about first love. It's about relationships between men and women. It's about mortality. It's about death. It's about life. It's about why are we here? What are we doing? The big philosophical questions. Yes, the newspapers are right. Snow is general all over Ireland, falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, softly upon the bog of Allen, and farther westward softly falling into the dark mutinous shannon waves one by one we're all becoming shades better to pass boldly into that other world in the full glory of some passion than fade and wither dismally with age how long you locked away in your heart the image of your lover's eyes when he told you that he did not wish to live. I've never felt that way myself towards any woman, but I know that such a feeling must be love. Think of all those who ever were, back to the start of time, and me, transient as they, flickering out as well into their grey world, like everything around me, this solid world itself which they reared and lived in is dwindling and dissolving. Snow is falling. Falling in that lonely churchyard where Michael Fury lies buried. Falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. Yeah, it's like that last paragraph in the short story and the last closing lines of the movie really expand it to almost a cosmic scale <laughs> and the, just these old notions of like fading and withering with age, it makes the short story, I mean, very profound when you get to the end, in spite of the fact that you've been watching these kind of trivial moments. But these trivial moments are what remind me so much of Christmas and all the things that I dislike about Christmas. And maybe I should explain why I dislike Christmas. It's just it's too much Ooh. expense, too many hangovers, too many social obligations, too much work. There's, there's not enough time nor money to do everything you're supposed to do. And then at the end of it, you're just kind of exhausted and, and bitter. And I think when you're a kid, it's amazing. When you're an adult, it just sucks. But like little great moments. Gabriel's talking to this woman and she starts telling this long story about catching a fish in Scotland and somebody boiling it for her. And he's like, oh, like, how interesting. And he's backpedaling out of the conversation and trying to escape. And I feel like so much of Christmas, it's all about backpedaling out of conversations that you really don't want to be in because you're seeing some relative that you see that one time a year at the Christmas party. You don't like them. You have no relationship with them. But suddenly you're expected to pretend as if you have some profound bond because you happen to attend the same Christmas party each year. Yeah, it's it's obvious that it's a bunch of regulars. I love that scene where he's sitting down talking. That's Freddie's Freddie Malin's mother. Yeah, and she asks she asks him in that scene. She says, "How is he?" No, she asks him, "Is he all right?" 
because she knows he's pissed. And uh, Donald McCann says, he's almost all right. And she goes, oh, God, <laughs> not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, he says, he, like, he says, like, where have you been all day? He's like, oh, I was at a committee meeting. He's like, oh, like, down to, like, such and such pub. Like, she's, she's totally on to him. Yeah, Freddie's just a total, complete and total lush well, the, well, I mean, for me, I, you say, why do you love this film? Well, there are lots of. Re- I think it's, I think it's the best Irish film ever made, and uh, I, 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 I sort of veer between this and The Butcher Boy as being the best Irish film ever made, depending on which one I've seen last, kind of thing. And I watched this one last night, so it's the dead at the moment. Uh, I just love it. It's perfect little chamber piece, but but um, but there are certain things in it for me that, that, that are personal to me like 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 every movie and her line actually is he says i was at a committee meeting and she says yeah where where was it in mulligan's pub and mulligan's pub still exists it's nice. on Silver street and, and mulligan's pub is where except for this year because of fucking covid and everything like that but every christmas eve for about 20 years now i've been going to mulligan's pub for a few pints and there's you know there's a group of us who used to go in and like the old uh, song Waltzing Matilda, year after year, their number got fewer. Someday no no man will come there at all. You know, it, it's like a, a, a like the dead. There's an ever changing who's back from London or who's away or there were years when I was away and then other thing, you know, but it's it's just a constant. And we chose Mulligan's Pub because it's right in the city centre. It used to be beside where the evening press newspaper was printed and um, it's uh, very close to Central Train Station and a couple of bus terminus, termini, I don't know. And, and so I, I was chosen, maybe it was me or someone else, I think it might, I might have, but anyway, someone said, let's meet in Mulligan's, and that has become the traditional pub every year. So I get a little buzz when she says Mulligan's Pub because I know the pub, you know, and I kind of get a little warm feeling. Um, and... There's a. What are you going to another... do this Christmas when you're not allowed to drink? I know you're you're back on the drink in January once you're off your antibiotics. But like, can you even endure? I mean, I, for me, one of the only things that makes the holidays even remotely endurable is drinking yourself into a stupor and then passing out and drooling on yourself. When was the last time you were like, you were a child? The last time you went through Christmas without having a cocktail? Um, well, you say, what? How am I going to get? What am I doing? I'm doing it right now. Gotcha. <laughs> I got to distract myself with something. So I'm doing you this. Can and I'm doing that. <laughs> you can read Ulysses. Read Ulysses, go for a long walk. Yeah, I mean, I haven't had a drink since October the 5th. Not that I'm counting the days or anything like that. But What yeah, will be the first drink you have upon your return? Oh, it'll definitely be behind the Guinness. Nice. Uh, absolutely, yeah, because, because with the pubs being closed. But, yeah, another reason that this year the film is relevant, I just wanted to mention the day that... Um, the film takes place is January the 6th, 1904, which is the feast of the epiphany. You know, and this is what a Catholic education does. <laughs> the epiphany is when the three wise men appeared in the stable to the Magi came from the East. Um, and like, you probably remember it from uh, the life of Brian. It's when the three guys arrive and they say, Oh, we've, but we've been guided by a star. God, by the bottle more like, and, uh, and she tries to sling them out, and uh, he says, "But we have brought gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Well, why didn't you say so?" Yeah. And she brings them in, and then <laughs> tells them to uh, tells them to bugger off, and then tells them, 
you know, don't go so heavy on the mur next year because yeah. nobody knows what mur is. <laughs> and then they come back and they push her to the ground and they take the gifts and they go next door because that's where Christ the Savior is. And this is Brian in the stable next door. So that is the epiphany. It's the epiphany is when Christ reveals himself to mankind. So essentially, he's been born in the stable to Jesus and Mary, but they haven't really got out. They've just been there for the week or two since the 25th of December. And then the three wise men arrive and they see Christ and they realize that he's the redeemer and the savior. And, you know, he, he they they have their epiphany. And I think like no, nothing in this story is left to chance. There's no it's not an accident that it's that day. It's chosen as the epiphany because Gabriel has an epiphany. I mean, he literally suddenly realizes oh my god why are we here what are we doing you know he has this yeah. revelation at the end well when he realizes that she has felt and experienced the most profound form of love you could possibly experience and he never has and most likely he's just going to continue to kind of decay and wither with age and he'll probably never never know those feelings but she's had this incredibly real experience with this boy who died prematurely and they just yeah, I reread that final paragraph before we started recording, and just that, that image of the snow falling on the grave of this kid who died at 17. I guess you can find it incredibly beautiful. You can find it incredibly sad or incredible. Like, is it is it all a life futile? Like, what are we supposed to do with our limited amount of time that we have on this planet? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's so beautiful. I yeah, listened to that um, movies that make men misty podcast you did a while ago, and this, this is the one. <laughs> This is the one that does it for me. As I was watching, it was supposed, this to, be, last it was supposed night, to be manly movies that make men misty, but uh, manly, but but, manly but, but both Bill and Moose kind of changed the theme and started diving into things that weren't necessarily particularly. I was like the whole. Like, for me, I wanted to be. Okay, I, I, I wanted a certain, but I guess in the end, it just became movies that make men misty. But there are plenty of movies that make men misty. I mean, I, I weep at all kinds of strange things. The whole point is like, what are like acts of bravado or courage or heroism that make you know manly men misty? But at any rate, it was a fun episode. We'll have to. Uh, revisit it at some point well I, well because I, I had seen this the last two times i seen it, it was it was with a, a full audience of people and there's something about that and it's very moving and i thought last night should i lash in the dvd you know have a cup of tea watch it you know just for research and i was on the couch like, oh i'm going i'm going you know it's it's it, i don't know there's something about that final scene and then the other scene which is when um the loss of akram is playing in the uh, on the stairwell but just before i will not finish january the 6th is not just the feast of the epiphany it is also very relevant in irish because there's a thing called nolig naban which is little women's or women's christmas which is a custom that you used to have uh, back in the old days in Ireland, uh, when men would never lift a finger to help over the Christmas season, then like a week or two after Christmas Day, the women got their own Christmas. Gotcha, you know? gotcha. Well, that, I mean, if you watch this party, the women work hard and they basically have to be physically restrained and placed down in their seat to actually enjoy the meal that they prepared. But the guys, they drink, they do a little bit of dancing, a little bit of bullshit, but, but the girls are doing all the heavy lifting without a doubt. Yeah. That's they're saying, sit down, take your take a load off. It is little Christmas, but they've decided this is their party and they're throwing it. So, so yeah, they don't they don't really embrace the Nolignum bond. Uh, so, so it's it's um, it's a Catholic festival, but it's also an old Irish festival, and it's also the day that I finish my antibiotics and I can have a little drinky on January the sixth. So or maybe even a, 
a big drinky. You never know. <laughs> Several drinkies. Like you can just put. You can be like Freddie. I mean, I think yeah. my, my. I guess the moment I always recall. I don't think it's the most moving. It's not necessarily the best written. But the scene that I always recall most is when Julia's been singing the song, and Julia is of advanced age, and her voice isn't probably as kind as it once was. But she's putting her all into it. And Freddie starts to compliment her and just keeps saying it and keeps repeating himself like, like I never heard you sing like half so well. And just, he yeah. keeps emphatically repeating it. It's like, dude, like, let it go. You're, you're turning like a, a sweet moment into this incredibly awkward moment that's making everybody feel embarrassed in a lot of ways. And that for me is like the essence of every family Christmas party that I've ever been to is somebody getting a little bit too tipsy and saying something that makes everybody feel awkward and just wish they hadn't come in, hadn't come at all. And that scene just, it screams out to me with like that stink of honesty. Yeah, it's it's brilliant. And we should give a shout out. Donald Donnelly, who is, I mean, everyone is brilliant in this film. I think it's the real cream of Irish acting and Irish American acting. Uh, but Donald Donnelly is just fantastic, like sad and funny and hilarious uh, and pathetic in this role as Freddie Mallon's the drunk and when, yeah, when he's doing that, he's over egging the pudding and yeah, at the beginning it was nice and now it's just embarrassing and how do we get him to stop kind of thing. And when he arrives and he's, you know, telling the whole, I, I he can't go in the toilet with the other guy there. You know, he's yeah, telling he's like, he's, uh, he says like, I've never been to relieve myself in the presence of another, otherwise I'd have joined the army. <laughs> but even as his mother though, is kind of spine of steel. And I love it at a certain point, she sees uh, Freddie going for another, like to, for a refill and she just grabs yeah. the glass and pulls it away. And thank you. Like you should have done that when he, when he arrived. Yeah. And, 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 and Fred, Donald Donnelly is appearing in the uh, Godfather three, the revived Godfather three, Donald Donnelly. I haven't seen Godfather three, but I know he's got quite a big part in it. I mean, I saw the original cut many times back in college because I was a Godfather fanatic, but I, I obviously prefer one and two mm. big time. Everybody's claiming that now it's the masterpiece that it should have been. I have a very hard time buying that. Just all the, the entire Godfather community was just in a very different place in their careers by the time they, they should have never come back and done that third one, but uh, I don't want to get derailed. Uh, but we haven't mentioned one of the probably the most one of the most famous Irish actors, at least two Americans, Colomini's in this movie, in a small part, but obviously whether you're talking Star Trek or The Commitments or whatever, or even now shows like Gangs of London, Colomini is huge, but I guess a fresh-faced youth in this movie. Yeah, he's like slim and trim in his in his uh, black tie, and he plays one of the sort of young gallants that are there. And uh, yeah, he doesn't have a very big part, but like, he, he, we have the real cream of sort of acting. He's one of the sort of younger actors amongst the the cast. He hit. He he doesn't have much to do. He has that great line when when Freddie is trying to have his bit of celery as is good for his iron and his blood, and then he tells him that he's all going down to Mount Mallory, which is obviously somewhere you go to take the cure to try and get yourself off uh, alcohol, the booze. Up, yeah. And then Colin Meany says to him you'll have lots of celery down in Mount Mellory and everyone laughs and Freddie gets pissed off again because he, everyone's laughing at him. So he has that good line at the table. He's very much in the background. And um, the funny thing about uh, Donald Donnelly is about his character, especially is that he's doing that mo most difficult thing possible, which is playing drunk. You know, I think it's one of the best portrayals of a drunk in movies, you know, you can always tell someone who's never been drunk in their life are playing the drunk card. Or the sometimes if somebody just actually gets drunk, it's it still doesn't work. Like you need someone like Richard E. Grant and uh, Withnail and I 
who was never drunk a day in his life because he's allergic to alcohol, but somehow mm. managed to play like one of the greatest drunks of all time. But playing drunk is actually a huge creative challenge and mm. very few people actually nail it. Yeah, I, I read, I, I saw an interview with Michael Caine once and he was talked about when he was in repertory theater, even back in the day, treading the boards, a great bit of advice he got. He was playing a character in a play and the character was supposed to be drunk. So he kind of wandered on stage, go, oh, oh, wow, really wasted. You know, and the director went, whoa, go, 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 go. What are you doing? He said, I'm drunk. So you're drunk. He goes, no, no, no. You're acting drunk. Drunk people you, try to act sober. Drunk yeah, people try to act sober. Yeah. And, and, and then it just clicked in his head. They yeah. try to stand up straight, but it's just slightly off, or they'll stumble over a particular word. Like I just, last night I started watching the movie, um, uh, another round, the new Thomas Vandenberg movie where these guys make this vow to always stay precisely right. at like 0.05% blood alcohol, but only during working hours as part of this experiment. But yeah, but the, the real trick of playing drunk is to be a drunk who's pretending to be sober. And that's where the magic happens. Like when, like when yeah. Richard E. Grant's like, honestly, officer, I've only had a few ales, but his eyes are just crimson and his skin is just deathly pale. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you've had more than a few ales, but it's a tough riddle to solve for an actor. Yeah. And he's just brilliant because he's always trying to try and he's always slightly behind the conversation because they get into this real in-depth conversation about they're not allowed to talk about politics because you can't do that because there will be a row. And they're not allowed to talk about religion because Miss, uh, what's his name? The uh, Dana Hurley character is of the other persuasion as in a Protestant. So they're talking about opera and um, they mentioned the this aria, her little hand is freezing. And Freddie says, well, why doesn't she go over by the fire? You know, and he gets the wrong end of the stick. And yeah. He's, but he's just brilliant. He kind of adds the comic relief that you but need. But Dan O'Hurley, he plays a great angry drunk. Like when somebody mentions oh, something about good singers working together, he's like, well, where are they? Like he just, I mean, which is basically what I'll probably be like in 20, 30 years when my nieces and nephews are, or, like, or like, you know, great nieces or great nephews mention like some director that they like or some filmmaker they like. I'm like, ah, they're no good filmmakers today. Gah, 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 gah. But he's obviously, he was great in uh, Robocop, but he's well, uh, getting to play a, a little more rich character in, uh, in this. But I, I absolutely loved his, what he brought to the table. It's a very different form of drunkenness. Yeah, he's brilliant in it. Absolutely hilarious. He's kind of the irascible drunk. He's kind of, but like he can hold his drink, although he gets more and more disheveled. The hair gets a bit more disheveled yeah. until he's just like flat out at the end of it. Absolutely. But um, yeah, he made two movies in 1987, Robocop and the Dead. <laughs> Absolutely outstanding work. Like what a That's what a good a, year. If any a, year you were working with Paul Verhoeven and, uh, and John Huston, you're having a very good year. As an actor, well, let's talk a little bit about John Huston, who very famously was on oxygen as he made this movie. He didn't think it was going to be his last. Like it, no one really knew that he wasn't going to even see the release of the film. He thought he might continue to make more, but he had emphysema from the late '70s onward. By the time he made this movie, apparently, if you went more than 20 minutes without oxygen, he was he was getting into rough terrain. And he directed most of it from a wheelchair. He actually never even went to Ireland to make it. There were only a few scenes were shot in Ireland. But he did uh, the best he could under the circumstances. But apparently everybody there said that even when he was like looking at a monitor and wasn't as like physically mobile as he once was, that he was just an absolute master of his craft. And he could almost kind of predict and anticipate how actors would read lines before they would even know how they were going to do a line themselves. And everyone who was there said it was an absolutely magical experience getting to uh, getting to work with him. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that. I mean, I've heard that he was famously on oxygen and you know he, he he didn't 
he didn't survive to see the film premiere. Like he didn't survive to see the film's release. So he he he. Uh, all, uh, it's it's amazing to think all those um, that the interiors are filmed in Hollywood because they they reconstruct so wonderfully the the inside of the of the Georgian houses of the period. And then when you see the credits, you see there's a the B crew that are going around doing the the exteriors of Ireland. Yeah, and, and they shot like in Joshua Tree in California. And they shot all, all over the place for what you think when you're, you're watching. Oh, they must have just been embedded in Dublin for, for months while they shot this. But uh, they shot very little in Dublin, but obviously great Irish cast. But I have a problem watching Americans who I know are Americans doing – English or Irish or Scottish accents. And I know Angelica Houston spent a large part of her, her early life in Ireland. How, even if her accent's perfect, I find myself constantly second-guessing it, waiting for her to slip. Mm. But for someone from Ireland, how does uh, Angelica, uh, Angelica Houston do? Yeah, I think she does great. I think she's, I think she's brilliant in this. I think it's one of her best roles. It's, it's, it's in, the Irish accent is impossible to get right, you know, and and I think the be- the best thing about it is that she, she she plays a fairly standard. It's not too much. She doesn't overreg it. It's not too. It's very, quite yeah, neutral. It's very subtle, which I think was a wise choice. So, you don't want to yeah. come across like Barry Fitzgerald or someone like that, where like where it's a little over the top. Yeah, and and I think she, she's been directed by her father, and he makes her, you know, look wonderful and sound wonderful and she has like the rhythm of the dialogue is in the written word there's all these wonderful phrases like you know oh i suppose we're in love with him and she says we were we were great together or something you know and and we used to go out walking gabriel you know like they do in the country these all these expressions that are they're sort of they're just there for you not to fuck up rather than to try and be too involved in the in the accent I don't think she 100% nails it, but the best thing is that she she doesn't do she she doesn't draw attention to it. So you can kind of go like within the first couple of sentences for me anyway, and maybe because I've seen the f- film a few times, I say, okay, that's how Greta talks. Okay, that's that's fine. I'm not constantly drawn back. If it was a bit more of a flowery, to be honest, you know, it's a lot of snow out there. You'd be a bit more. You'd be dragged out of the movie every time. But she yeah. does it. I mean, yeah. most Americans make the mistake of thinking, "Oh, it's an Irish accent. I gotta like lean into the R and like make that the only letter in every single word in which it appears." And it's like, ugh. But I just feel like me. Yeah, most American actors doing accents from across the pond is hopelessly beyond their reach. And for me, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Anytime I see someone try it, and I just, I, I'm just totally opposed. But I'm a total hypocrite or contradict myself because anytime someone from across the pond wants to do an American accent, I'm like, all right, show me what you got. And I'm very, I'm very open to it. So it's very curious to see what they're going to do. And I think a lot of them in a weird way do better American accents than Americans like Gary Oldman. He's an absolute master. Yeah. I mean, if you want to make it, you've got to master that American accent, you know, and, and, and maybe it's because of a distance or a remove. I'm always a bit more forgiving. But I mean, people people get really wound up in Ireland if someone does a, a horrific, you know. There's there's lots of lists of the worst Irish accent ever. And, Doesn't Tom uh, Cruise do one in Far and Away? Yeah, he does. He does a, 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 you know, oh, Shannon, you're a, you're a I mean, corker. Sight yeah. unseen, you know that's a bad idea. Tom Cruise should talk like Tom Cruise in every single movie. He doesn't need to do a weird voice for Vampire Lestat. He doesn't need to do a weird. Just Tom Cruise should just be Tom Cruise because that's what that's who Tom Cruise is. He's a big massive movie star, and people show up to see Tom Cruise be Tom Cruise. He's, he's good at running. 
know, yeah. just get him running, yeah. you know, and running is good, but, but not in, running the mouth off in the Irish accent. But yeah, but with Angelica uh, Houston, I much prefer her performance in Preeti's Honor, which obviously is much more broad. I mean, Preeti's Honor mm-hmm. is this wild gangster love story, like assassin movie with Jack Nicholson and Kathleen Turner, but uh, Angelica Houston plays Jack Nicholson's kind of older girlfriend, and she just she's so sexy and so delightful and so funny. I think in a lot of ways, it's like the best work she ever did. So you could criticize her for pre-designer for doing something that's so like cartoonish and over the top, but mm. she just leans into it with such bravado that I find that to be the better performance. But she worked with her father several times as a wee lass on the Misfits. She was in Wise Blood. She was in Under the Volcano. And obviously, as she got older, started doing bigger and bigger parts for her father. But she took her a long time to even embrace the idea of being an actress because like in the late 60s and 70s when she was getting involved with Jack Nicholson, she wasn't even really that involved in the movie biz, but obviously eventually became a, like a real heavyweight in her own right. Yeah, she, she uh, I mean, yeah, she's not perfect in this. And again, it's very difficult because she's acting opposite Donald McCann. And he is just a, a genius. Yeah. Like he's one of Ireland's great actors. And everything he does is, he's been out the movie thing a while now, you know, so it's so understated. And obviously his accent's fine because he's, you know, he's very, he sounds exactly like this sort of, middle class guy teacher we hear at the end because the man asked him about the the result exactly how he, sh- he should sound and uh obviously angelica houston is going to be in it because she's john houston's daughter and she's perfect for the role of greta and, and and i think greta the character is interesting because joyce met his wife nora barnacle and uh, i heard the story that when Joyce's father, John, you know, that was her actual name, but Nora Barnacle, when he heard it, he said, well, geez, she'll stick to him anyway, or whatever the joke was, you know, we know getting rid of her now. And um, they had this love affair and everything, but but he met her on the street, a place street called Nassau Street in Dublin, walking down one day, thought she looked really sexy, went up talking to her. She thought he was a Swedish sailor with his blue eyes and didn't quite know he was Irish at the beginning because he talked all fancy. But she was from Galway and she was dark haired. She was a mysterious. She was a bit more earthy than the sort of posh, polite ladies that he knew. And I, I get the sense that, you know, probably that, that that's who Greta is based on. That is, that is, you know, a version of Nora Barnacle, of Joyce's wife. This one who's a little bit wild, has this earthy nature to her. And as we find out then, you know, has lived and loved and uh has more passion in her little toe than Gabriel has in his whole body. Um, well, that's one thing that's missing from the movie that would be tough to show visually that's in the short story, which I love. But Gabriel in the short story, you can tell, is starting to feel a little little amorous. He's got, a, he's got the itch, mm. and he's thinking long and hard about pouncing at, at the earliest available opportunity, and he's getting increasingly frustrated and annoyed and agitated that her mind is light years away because she heard Mm. this song and it's beautiful in the story and it's beautiful in the movie, but she's sitting there on the stairwell listening to this song and it just takes her back to this experience she had. And obviously the last thing on her mind is having sex with Gabrielle tonight, even though that's what he desperately wants. But it is one of those things where it's like, when you're reading the short story, we are, we have access to his innermost thoughts. Whereas in the movie, how do you visually show that? And there's like, there's little small subtle differences. Like there's a bit of humor which I wish they'd found a way to include in the movie where they're trying to give directions to the uh, the cab driver and mm. there's just, it's like Tower of Babel. We have all these mm. 
drunken Irish people who've been up all fucking night getting shit faced, all giving mm. conflicting <laughs> directions. And Freddie's kind of like just laughing hysterically at just like what a comedy of errors has become. But yeah, on the whole, I mean, in terms of like tone and atmosphere, John Huston nailed it. Yeah, it's 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 brilliant. It's it's all contained in eighty-two minutes. It's it's a perfectly short little chamber piece for such an ambitious movie. Like it's 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 epic in its scope, only in that it's he's saying I'm gonna explore epic of the human all these things. Exactly the spirit. You know, I mean, it's really you know happens all in one room. It's not epic in terms of uh, the uh, players or anything like that. But yeah, I think it's. Um, incredibly manages to capture completely the spirit of the story you know at the end it's like how are we going to do this how are we going to get this they settle for voiceover and you hear it and you have that's really the only way to do it you have to do that last paragraph and you can't do it visually it's just it's not possible so i think voiceover was really their only option yeah and and as you mentioned the uh, the song last loss of Akram or Lass of Akram which is the which is the um song that song that's a, just such a beautifully handled scene and such a beautifully act it's probably the best acted scene in the movie because neither Angelica Houston nor Donald McCann speak so this is just pure we've gone to another level and Donald McCann looks at her and he doesn't do anything because, you know, he you can tell there's what's he say? Like, why am I experiencing such a rage of emotions? You know, he's kind of it's all internal. But she's coming down the stairs in this old Georgian building and behind her is a stained glass window and she's wearing a white shawl. She looks like the Virgin Mary. It's all framed beautifully and just playing on her face. You only find out later what she's thinking, but she's back in Nuns Island in Galway with this guy, Michael Fury, and they used to go out walking together. And the whole episode that's a uh, whole tragic episode that's going to be related like, later. And, you know, they there's about 12 steps between them, but they may as well be 10,000 miles apart. Like Absolutely. Just shooting in different directions. Her mind is elsewhere, much to his annoyance. Yeah, and but but I guess that's what it all boils down to. This incredible director who has learned, you know, it's all economy, economy. You know, less is more, less is more. I don't have a hell, 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 lot of time here to make this movie, and just in general, and it's all and that that the movie boils down to that scene. The two of them looking at each other, sort of helplessly. They don't say anything when they do start speaking. Completely inarticulate. Anyway, they can't they can't reconnect. And uh, that, to me, is sort of the genius of John Huston's direction, that he just, you know, he doesn't need to, he knows when to, there's no fussy camera movement or anything. You just hear the song in the background from uh, uh, Bartle Darcy, the, the, the tenor, who's, uh, who's, yeah, he's funny because he's been invited to the party as this famous tenor, but he's decided he's not going to sing because he's protecting his voice. You know, it's like inviting Sinatra to your dinner party. No, I don't feel like singing tonight. You know, he's just, he's just going to keep it on ice. And then someone convinces him at the end. And that's another nice little thing that they add that isn't in the story, the little little burgeoning love story between him and the woman that he meets at the party. And they get to pull the wishbone apart, yep. you know, he says, Oh, I hope you were wishing for what I was wishing for, or we're wishing for the same thing. And so there's things bubbling there even while, while, while Gabriel and like when the girl gives him like a big wink, like, like uh, when they're out on the dance floor and that sort of thing, like all that very, it's funny how 
people think like in order to be sexy, you got to do something, something overt or pornographic or whatever. But sometimes if you're just at a party and like, you know, all sorts of chaos going on, like a big wink at a time when no one else sees it can just like a sword going right through your heart. Like, oh, my God. And so, yeah, like the little moments like that, which I think uh, the movie captures incredibly well. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah, absolutely. Big fan of the big wink. You know, it's uh, and, and, and she and you know that those two are kind of they, they tease each other as well. She's the one who calls him a West Britain. And she yeah. and then she, she discovers that he's writing for the Express, which is, you know, uh, she's tumbled him. But, yeah, their banter is great. And the fact you, you get the idea that they sort of go hammer and tongs whenever they meet each other. And it's all expressed in that. And then in, the, in that little wink, it's just uh, it's gorgeous. And um it's funny, you won Rachel Dowley just at the beginning. Lily, who, when she was telling us, that was her first acting job, like meeting John, John Houston, going to Hollywood. She has that line where she goes, the men, the men that is now is only old palaver and what they can get out of you. And again, it's like, <laughs> that's what people say these days. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Men, men, men in 1904, there's like, there, there's that sort of rough, element when uh, another line that a uh, meanie gets when he comes out of the place he goes jesus it's so cold it's worth getting married just to stay warm because <laughs> you want to get <laughs> you, you want to get warm in 1904 you want to get in the bed with someone you better goddamn marry them absolutely you know? so that's, uh, that's you another get your feet level, tangled uh, up and that sort of thing so i think they throw in these and some of them aren't in obviously that line isn't in the story and nor is the burgeoning romance between but it Bartle feels Darcy. It, faithful to the spirit of the text okay. it's like when you see a really good actor who like say you're performing Shakespeare and something goes wrong somebody skips ahead or forgets a line some actors are so good and such masters of that iambic pentameter and Elizabethan verse that they can actually improv in like a Shakespearean style which is just awe-inspiring but you need someone like Ian McKellen who can do that but I think you're doing something similar here where if you have beats and moments, little just offhand comments that feel faithful to the original Joyce, you're doing something very special. Yeah, and, and, and I guess what those things do as well is that subtly I kind of realize, you know, like the saying that Bartle Darcy's going to get some tonight, you know, and that, you know, that the, there's a burgeoning romance there. And even Meanie and his mate have met these two women at the party. And so there's romance flowering everywhere just as this couple is, sort of hitting the skids or hitting a yeah. little speed bump Gazing into the abyss of inevitable decay and disillusionment. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, the whole thing of, is it better to burn out than to fade away? The whole Neil Young thing. This is the whole debate at the end. About... Even yeah, the Kurgan said that in Highlander. It's like, better to burn out than to fade away. But yeah, I, I plan on sticking around until I'm old and gray and snarling at Christmas dinner at all the uh, the younger generation and so on and so forth. I, I, I eagerly look forward to being a mean old man scaring all the lovely children. Uh, but I guess... Is this a movie you'd recommend for people to watch for Christmas? This is our Christmas special. Like, first and foremost, do you love Christmas? Do you hate Christmas? But what which movies kind of embody that Christmas spirit? Because for me, I like watching movies around Christmas, but it's got to have something savage and twisted about. It. Like, I mean, I'll watch something like you know Boris Karloff and like How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the original cartoon, because he's he's such like a you know a mean old bastard. But I need something like that to make it uh, to to get its hooks into me. Yeah, um, I, I love Christmas, and uh, but my, like my favorite Christmas movie for the last kind of ten years has been Bad Santa. I just love watching Bad yeah, Santa and like getting getting loaded and watching Bad Santa and 
watching um or Billy Bob get uh, get juiced up and just behave appallingly. I think that's a fantastic Christmas film. Um, do you prefer I Christmas I, movies that are about Christmas, or do you prefer Christmas movies that have Christmas as part of like the backdrop, like Batman Returns? Everybody likes to say, "Oh, that's a great Christmas movie." It's like, yeah, I guess maybe, but it's really a movie about Batman, the Penguin, and Catwoman. But obviously, it takes place during Christmas. So, it, but everybody now likes to like reevaluate these movies. What are the quintessential Christmas films? Which is how like Die Hard and all that kind of stuff keeps coming up. Yeah. I I mean, I, I like Die Hard, and again, like there's there's a couple of cinemas that start playing those kind of movies, and, and I I always go and see Bad Santa if it's on in the cinema, you know. And there's a the great thing about the IFI, the lighthouse, is you can bring a drink in, you can be drinking wine while you're um you know while you're watching it. Actually, you remind, remind me of when I went to see The Dead last year, it was um obviously in January the sixth, 2020. We didn't know what the fucking hell was coming down the line, and I sat down in my seat and I and I had a a, a large a double wine in my hand because uh, I was prepared and uh, this will get me through 82 minutes and there was a gentleman an, an older gentleman sitting beside me went oh you know you're you're oh you're very clever you're well, well prepared there with your drink or something like that I don't know maybe hadn't been to the cinema that cinema before or no and I said oh yeah, yeah. Do, you know do not get yourself anything he went oh well I had a couple of gin and tonics before I came in you know he was kind of like very conspiratorial yeah. exactly exactly and and anyway we the film was introduced, the lights went down low, we, we watched the movie, and when the lights came up, he was crying, he was crying into his hand, and he was trying to, he was trying to um, brush away the, the tears as he spoke, and he, he just, I looked at him, and he just, he just turned to me, and he went, very powerful, and I was like, oh, fucking hell, mate, I'm gonna go now in a minute, if you don't get hold of yourself, you know, and um, yeah, so it, it is, for me, a very emotional experience movie, there's another um, thing like the Mulligan's pub when Greta is talking about Michael Fury she talks about Uchtarard where where his people come from and when I was a kid my granny and granddad lived in Uchtarard it's a place in Connemara on the Corrib River and I used to go down there every summer uh, we used to go down there every school holidays so when I hear things like that which is obviously quite a you know small town in the west of Ireland I get a great little beat and, and this is I guess it's a little bit of a cheap Christmas movie I thought we might do it because people might not have seen it before and people will have seen Bad Santa a hundred times I know I have and Elf and uh, well, it's funny how like, you and Robert O'Mara keep pitching these ideas that force me to read great works of literature and I hope y'all never stop pitching these kinds of topics because like, I, I love reading a lot of trashy fiction and I, I'll read science fiction, horror and fantasy till the day I die. But you recently obviously pitched Bud Schulberg and then Robert Amar pitched Graham Greene. So I read my first Graham Greene novel, uh, um, Brighton Rock. And then for this, I revisited, I, I dusted off my old copy, my old hardback of Dubliners, which had like, which caked in dust, but I've held on to this since college. I feel like it's like my, my mind is like a withered old plant that's been watered when I actually do go back and read some great literary fiction. I'm not particularly keen on the idea of or, or reading reading new literary fiction i'd rather like have a drill go right through my forehead but great classic works of uh, of literary fiction i'm always down to revisit especially if it gives me an opportunity to celebrate one of my all-time favorite filmmakers who depending upon my mood sometimes he's on my mount rushmore sometimes he's not i mean mount rushmore you only got room for four filmmakers and wells peck and pond hawks are always there the fourth spot is always kind of up for grabs but like Houston and like Leone and a couple other directors are always fighting like a fist fight over that fourth slot. But mm. I do like Houston quite a bit and never miss, I'm never miss an opportunity to celebrate his work on this podcast. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is a brilliant swan song. You know, it's like I'm going to go out on a hot, like I'm going to tackle Joyce because they've told me it can't be filmed. 46 and I'm years after his feature film debut as a director. I mean, he'd been working in the film industry as a writer in the 30s, but Maltese Falcon 41 to 87. How many directors can you name that were making great work over the span of nearly 50 years? I mean, there's Bergman, there's Bunuel, there's Herzog. Oh, Herzog. Yeah, Herzog's been active 50 years now. There, but there are very few. There is a very short list, and Houston's on that list. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant. I mean, it's subtle uh, movie. I was, I, I was watching it last time, and I was thinking, because they show it on a thirty-five mil print, and I was going, you know, I'm fed up watching this fucking movie on a thirty-five mil print. Like this movie has been treated appalling. I bought the DVD a few weeks ago for this. Uh, there's a version on YouTube. I sent you the link. Someone's uploaded it. Seven I, I times just rented it on Amazon, but it's been perfectly yeah. restored and looks good. Oh, does it look good on Amazon? Because yeah. I, I didn't know it was on there because I don't think this movie has ever been put out on Blu-ray and I don't think it's ever been restored like 4K or anything like that. So um, the the DVD that I watched, the, the like the opening credits, are still like shaky, like they're on the rostrum camera. Oh, you know, the, the print on Amazon was actually good. And Amazon is yeah. not 100%. I mean, sometimes you'll rent one movie on Amazon and you'll get another movie by the same name, or it's like, all right, get your shit together. This is not the movie that I'm looking for. Amazon mm-hmm. has a lot of slip ups like that. But luckily, The Dead, I didn't end up accidentally renting you know, some other goddamn movie. I'm sure there are plenty of movies called The Dead, but apart yeah. from the John Houston film. Yeah, well, because I remember uh, well, on Amazon, I bet you if I go and look for it now, it won't be here because a lot of them are only available in America and you go for look for them in Ireland or the UK and uh, Amazon uh, Prime, and they're not they're not available for whatever rights reasons or whatever. But I was watching um, One-Eyed Jacks is up on it and I, and I watched it and I thought, what, and I, well, I watched the first couple of seconds or the first couple of minutes and thought, this is the worst print I've ever, this is the worst transfer I've, I've ever seen. Like if I, if I got this from a video store or, you know, if I got this from, a bootlegger out of a boot of a car, I'd go back to them to complain, but it's on Amazon Prime, you know, uh, rent. So yeah, some of them are just appalling, but uh, I think it's kind of overdue a bit of digging out the negative and getting it on Blu-ray and yeah. dusting it out and giving it a bit of criterion love or whatever. It would be nice just to see it restored from the print and looking really glossy and the sound all remixed and everything like that. Because I heard when when they initially released it, it's on, it's on, someone had put this up there, uh, Lionsgate released it, and they cut 10 minutes out of the film. So it's an 82-minute movie. They, they made it 72 minutes. It's like, you know, like the films are three fucking hours these days, and this is a perfect little snow globe of a movie, but they decided, no, it's a bit slow. Let's take out 10 minutes and make it 72 minutes. And then there was such a kerfuffle. So I was worried if I got the DVD or the right one, but no, it's the 82-minute version. And um, that was that was pe- people uh, gave out shit, so it was restored to its its natural glory. But it does manage to co- cover in those eighty two minutes quite a quite a lot of ground. Well, as that. a way, I'm determined never with these episodes about one movie to make an episode like a podcast longer than the movie itself. But as a way of starting to draw things down to a close, do you wish? To subject, or I guess uh, grace the listeners of Ron Real to a reading of that final paragraph of the dead, since it is so famous. I mean, this is one of the like, when it comes to like the goat conversation, is pound for pound one of the greatest paragraphs ever written by a human being. And uh, I don't think uh, 
if I were to read it in my atrocious American accent, that it have quite the same lyrical ring to it. <laughs> okay, well, I'll give it a go. But th there's another bit as well that I thought was amazing in it was, was the actual description of the feast. And it's great when, when you see the actual dinner laid out. They've got the goose and they've got the ham. But Joyce describes it and it's like they've got American apples and they've got peeled almonds and they've got blancmange, red, uh, jelly, red. And yet they've got all this amazing stuff. So the, the actual party itself... Uh, is unbelievable, but I can give it. But of course, Dana Hurley, he's this. like no applesauce. He's like you know incredibly indignant. Yeah, and I, and I and I love the um, uh, no applesauce, of course. And she has she you know if it was good enough for her, it was good enough for uh, for me. Uh, but I love that uh, I love that uh, line that he says earlier. I'll just read the last paragraph then if you want to do that. But the, the line earlier where he says uh, snow was general all over Ireland, you know, and you see all these beautiful shots of the snow. But with Gabriel. Um, Looking out the window, a few light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the bog of Allen, and further westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descendant of their last end upon all the living and the dead. I mean, it gives me goosebumps hearing it read. It gives me goosebumps every time I read it. It's one of the most, when you look at like all the crap that's been written, especially in the world of movies, like screenplays and whatnot, it's like gorillas and apes and Neanderthals banging with rocks or throwing their feces. But James Joyce, I think his reputation, let's just say, is deserved. <laughs> he, he was good. And one of these days, when I grow up and uh, you know learn how to read and accept a challenge, I will take a crack at Ulysses. But I'll make you a deal. If you read Ulysses, then I'll read Ulysses. But <laughs> it's going to be... That's a, there's that great photograph of Marilyn Monroe reading Ulysses. You know, there's a, there's a great absolutely. photograph from the, from the film set of one she of the She was a things. big reader. She's, I mean, she they, fucking oh, married Arthur Miller. I mean, I, I can't imagine that she was uh, completely uh, inept when it came to discussing great literature. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I mean, and she she had, yeah, obviously after, after uh, what's his name, Joe, uh, the baseball player. Joe DiMaggio, yeah. Joe DiMaggio, yeah, of course, Joe DiMaggio, and then Arthur Miller, and uh, uh, yeah, very, very literate uh, woman, and would have been very uh, interested in that sort of literature. I'm definitely going to give it a crack. I mean, after this, I've, I've, I've got to, I've got to peel it. And uh, like I said, I've got a little bit of time on my hands at the moment and I'm six over and sorry. So I can definitely get stuck into a bit of a uh, bit of uh, but a bit more, a bit more of Joyce. Well, where can people find you if they want to discuss great works of Irish literature? Where can they, or discuss the works of John Houston and yeah, anything that we have to look forward to in terms of your writing or your filmmaking or anything else along those lines? Well, well, I would say about about this uh, about this movie for everyone. You know, it's a Christmas special. It's a kind of Christmassy movie. 
it's set around Christmas time. We cheated a little bit because it's actually on January the 6th, the Feast of the Epiphany. But uh, if you haven't seen it, it's only 82 minutes and it's got lots of really beautiful words like that. Um, I'm on at Sim O'Neill, um, taking a little break. I was off work last week, so I was just sort of walking around and tinkering and riding and going for long walks. It was nice weather and everything like that. So I've, I've lots of projects fulminating in my mind, you know, Joyce casts a long shadow to all us Irish writers. So reading that, I'll probably be too intimidated to uh, even besmirch the virgin white page with my ramblings. But nothing no, more intimidating than a blank piece of paper. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty scary. I got, I got a fight in one once and I got paper cuts all over my uh, over my wrists. So, uh, yeah, those things, those things are vicious. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this conversation. If you've never read any Irish literature, you could do worse than reading The Dead, which comes at the end of Dubliners. People, sometimes people mislabel as The Dubliners. It's just Dubliners. It's the name of the collection of short story. Gets my highest possible recommendation. And of course, John Hewson. He is the man. Start with Maltese Falcon and work your way up to the dead. And he zigs and zags all over the place over the course of his 50-year career. Not all of his films are genuine classics, but a lot of them are. And so I think... Uh, yeah, you can't you can ask for a better director to tackle this material. But as always, please remember to leave a rating and review. And if you want to talk more with me, you can find me at Colbrax or check out some short form content at uh, Geekin with James Hancock. But we hope everyone has a very Merry Christmas. I apologize for all my negativity about this holiday. It'll all be over before we know it. And I'll be back to my usual. I actually prefer tax season to the holidays. And then uh, I'll be uh, doing cartwheels once we uh, emerge out the other end of the tunnel. But we hope everyone has a very happy holiday season. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but... Uh... It'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.